Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. How many times do you ever buy a property by looking through the letterbox? You never buy a property by looking through the letterbox. Typically, you would open the door, you walk in, you look at the lounge, the bathrooms, the kitchen, the garden. You are building context of the property. Typically, you then come out of the property, you look at external factors, the bars, the bistros, the common, how far are the schools, what's the crime rates, and then you make an informed decision Should you put an offer to the property, yes or no? That process is building context. And in all shapes and forms of life, anytime you go away to make a decision, you use context. So why is it when we are tackling financial crime, people are using a sliver of amount of data to make that decision? My name is Vishal Maria, and I'll be walking you through on how do you use AI to better prevent financial crime. So today's agenda is first and foremost, just to walk through on what happens when financial crime goes wrong. Where does the proceeds of crime end up? The second part, which I'll spend a fair amount of time, is the recent developments in technology and analytics And how do we use that from the front line all the way to the third line to better prevent and detect financial crime? And finally, I've got two great case studies that we've been working with with two different institutions around tackling financial crime. For today, we've got plenty of time. um, So if there are any questions, please do not hesitate to interrupt or put your hand up and I will either not answer your question, or I will answer your question, or I will park the question to the end. The consequences of money laundering. You probably all hear about financial crime, KYC, onboarding, and a lot of the times can be a dull and laborious process. Are you managing process, or are you detecting financial crime? two very distinct elements. So fortunately or unfortunately, over the last 15 years, I've been tackling financial crime in my different careers. And fortunately or unfortunately, I've spent a lot of time outside of the UK in places like Mexico, places like Europe, certain places in Europe, working with large organizations to tackle financial crime. But to really understand the consequence you really need to understand what is the modus operandi. So if we look, for example, the proceeds of crime can end up in terrorist financing. So as we know, a few years back, we had a a number of events in the UK where we were victims of financial crime. We were victims of money movement across the UK to facilitate financial crime, to facilitate terrorism activity. Human trafficking, sex trafficking, The cost of an individual, it's quite personal. How much is a young person, male or female, worth? How much 
is that young male or female coming from a country in Europe to the UK worth in the UK? £5,000, £3,000, £10,000. One person, the cost of one person to an, an organized gang, £2,500. The business case of that one individual, half a million pounds, a million pounds. So that £2,500 investment to bring someone into the UK the business case of that young female or that young male, half a million to a million pounds. It's quite sick. You're putting a cost of a life. There are a number of different case studies around how those movement of people come through and what is the process of grooming people to bring them here. Narco-trafficking, the movement of goods, the movement of money, and finally, wildlife crime, a very large growing problem globally. And again, the proceeds of crime directly impact. So I'm going to focus a bit on human trafficking. So I was fortunate um, to be asked to present at the CNN um, report on International Freedom Day. And as part of that journey on International Freedom Day, one of the biggest growing criminal enterprises is human trafficking. It is growing 10x monthly. It is a big global problem. And coming back to my earlier point, these are people. These are little individuals. They could be large individuals. But these are people that are being moved because of the proceeds of crime. The estimate today is around 40 million people are enslaved that number keeps growing daily. And the more you look, the more you will find. And again, through my career, that number has been growing exponentially throughout. So, how do we use tech? Coming back to my earlier point, you never buy a house by looking through the letterbox. We all agreed on that. You never, a show of hands, please. Does anyone disagree with you buy a house by looking through the letterbox? If anyone disagree, can you please buy my house? So you are building context. You are building context of the property before you make an offer. The same thing is true. You need to build context of your customer. And that starts right from the beginning during onboarding. When you are onboarding the customer, are you asking the right questions? Are you capturing the right answers? Data quality issues, fat finger issues, these are all issues that you need to overcome. Because if you don't collect the data, garbage in, garbage out. So, we live in an imperfect world where we will always have bad quality data. Technology today can solve these challenges. Technology today can solve these challenges by substituting data quality with data quantity. So, for example, my name is Vishal Maria, 
Actually, my full name is Vishal Kumar Maria. I live in SW16 1LD. My telephone number is 1234. I won't give my right telephone number out. But I did give my right postcode out. Somewhere else in the data, you've got another fella. His name is Vishal Maris. His postcode is SW15 1LD. And his telephone number is 1235. Now, as a human, you would look at those two records and you would go, oh, similar name, one letter different. It could be someone incorrectly put the A instead of the S. Oh, the postcode is one digit different, but everything else is exactly the same. Oh, the telephone number, one digit different, but everything else is exactly the same. Is that Vishal Maria the same as that Vishal Maris? Question. If you look at the name Muhammad, the name Muhammad can be spelt in 128 different variations. So if you use that first name with a surname, you might have a problem with false positives. You might overlink too many people together because of the, f the first name. Alternatively, if you look at my chief analytics officer, his name is Felix Hodinot, spelt with a double D and a double T. And thank goodness, he is the only Felix Hodinot in the entire United Kingdom. So having a statistical view on building that view of your customer is critical. Because if you just use traditional techniques around fuzzy matching, you have a problem with overlinking, where you might overlink on a first name, or you might have a problem of underlinking, for example, Vishal Maria and Vishal Maris. So building a statistical view of your customer is the first part of building context. The second part of building context Coming back to buying a house, I didn't just use the house to make my decision, should I buy this property? I used external factors around that house, relationships of those houses to make that decision. For example, if my property was sold for a million pounds and the property up the road was sold for 1.4 million pounds, the two properties are very similar. So therefore, what is the value of the property next door to mine? Well, there's a range there. I'm making a relationship. So coming back to the customer, once I've resolved Vishal Maria, and I know Vishal Maria, the next thing I want to know is who does Vishal Maria know? Oh, Vishal Maria lives at an address at the same time with his wife, Rukshana Maria. So Rukshana lives at this address, SW161LD, with Vishal Maria, who also lives at that same address. There is now a relationship between myself and my wife, which I hope there is a relationship between myself and my wife, by this address being SW161LD. I am now building context, not about just Vish, but about the address and the people who live at that address. 
That is static information, KYC information, that you would collect as institutions. The other thing you collect is transactional data. So, for example, if I was a generous person, which I'm not, but if I was generous and I was sending money to Mike, 50 pounds every week for the last six months, there is now a relationship between Mike and I because I'm sending him money. That's a transactional relationship. Sometimes transactional relationships could be considered stronger than actual static relationships. But again, I am building context. I'm building context about Vish and Vish's relationships, which is what we call contextual view of your data. And again, coming back to buying the property, you don't make the decision on the letterbox. You are looking at the full context. Those two steps is about building context. Now, I've just focused on your internal information, what you would capture as a traditional trade bank, retail bank, or a global banking and market division. What about external data? So there are data files out there, like Dun & Bradstreet, or Bureau Van Dyke, Orbis, which is collecting globally data around companies. So for example, Vishal Maria lives at an address, is sending money to Mike, is also the director of Quantexa. On the board of directors of Quantexa, there is HSBC, there is Albion, and there are Dawn, three investors into my company with me being the director. That is again building context about Quantexa and about Vishal. So again, very simply, even if you might have very small amount of data, the world is capturing data at petabytes. Harnessing that and putting that part of the contextual view, again, is powerful in building the context about Vishal. So very quickly, I've gone from Vishal Maria living at an address to Vishal Maria living at an address connected to Rukshana, sending money to Mike, the director of Quantexa, who has four other directors who are all connected to Quantexa. Now you're getting a better view of Vishal. Then comes the next part of the process, which is around machine learning, advanced analytics, AI, etc. So, machine learning, if you have a set of very good outcomes, you could train a machine against those outcomes. Now, in financial crime, one of the challenges are we don't know if the outcome was good or bad. The end part of the process could be a SAR was filed and it's been logged with a local authority. But we don't know if that was a good SAR or a bad SAR. So therefore, sometimes when you are applying advanced analytics like your machine learning or your AI, can be a challenge in financial crime because we don't have known outcomes. 
we know this was filed. That could be a good reason. You might say 80% of all of the SARS we filed were good SARS. So you could train a model on that. Alternatively, and in addition, you don't know what you don't know. Allowing the data to drive some of those anomalies, again, is putting a set of more vigorous controls in detecting financial crime. So I'll give you an example. You have a bank account. This bank account doesn't do any normal behavior. What's normal? Okay, in the UK, normal behavior on a bank account would be paying council tax, paying TV license, grocery shopping, paying a mortgage or rent. These are normal behaviors of an individual bank account. Suppose if I now tell you five bank accounts which are all connected and nobody is doing normal behavior. All you are seeing is money coming in and money going out. Now that one individual account in isolation might be a genuine account. But now you're putting that with context. The machine is telling you that this network is not normal. None of the other networks are doing this behavior. So you need to have a two-way approach. If you've got known outcomes, absolutely having a machine to, to train against those known patterns and those known outcomes absolutely is critical in the defense. However, you also need unsupervised analytics to go through the data and those networks and those entities to drive abnormal patterns and drive that for investigation. The last two points. A large tier one bank will have millions of customers. Those millions of customers will have billions of transactions. Those billions of transactions will need to all be networked together and build context. So you need to also drive automation through that process on building the context, applying the analytics, and then surfacing that information up to an end user. A human cannot do that entire process across millions of customers, across billions of transactions. But you do need an approach to have both. For example, if a terrorist attack occurred, or there's been a list of known bads come from another peer bank, as a banker, you would want to know, A, do I bank this customer? And B, what's my risk against that customer? So that is a tip-off. That could be a law enforcement tip-off. Tip it could be a 314B in the US. It could be a known event that's occurred in the UK you still want the ability to go back and understand that risk. Do you bank this person, yes or no? And secondly, what are the relationships? Because if, it's, if Vish is a known bad, you just don't want to know about Vish. You want to know his entire network. Because this is a squash balloon effect. You squeeze me, 
I will just pop up somewhere else. Or if you squeeze me, the money will just leave via one of my associated accounts. So you need to understand the full context. And finally, applying big data, big analytics, machine learning, etc., is only good if it's fully transparent and a human can understand the outcome. Saying it's two standard deviations from the norm, huh. Saying that Vishal has the following patterns of cash kiting on a network, and he's also connected to no two known money launderers, for a human, that makes a lot of sense. So being able to do all of this fancy analytics is only good is if it's fully transparent, A, for your model risk management division and the regulator on why did you close this and why did you not alert this, but also important for an end user who has to go away and investigate. This process here has only been capable of doing this because of the advances of technology over the last five, six years. With the power of distributed computing, with the power of cloud, you are able to process large volumes of data instantly. This power before was either not there or would cost an organization significant millions to put in place. So with the advances of the ground tech, the advances of the upside tech allows technology to drive this type of behavior, which before was not the case. This is a true example of a network which was created by us using KYC and CDD data, public record data, so things like your Dun & Bradstreet, your Bureau Van Dyke Orbis data, plus some known watch list information, so the likes of your sanctions list, your PEPs list, and so on from companies like Dow Jones or WorldCheck as well as some negative news information as well. This is the, a, an example data set which can build a view like this. But most importantly, how do you make this digestible to a human? Because if somebody sees this view, they could almost be frightened to even investigate. What am I seeing? So having the machine tell the human, here is your risk factor, and these are the reasons why this has been alerted, is absolutely critical in today's world of combating financial crime. Another example. So in this particular bank, this particular customer here had a customer account which was transacting with this external account and lived at this address. So very simple to what I described earlier with myself, living at an address 
with a bank account and sending money to poor Mike. Now, with this particular bank, the law enforcement agency contacted the bank and said this particular customer is a confirmed terrorist. Without context, the bank did the investigation and said, here are all the information we know. Here's an external account it's connected to. Here's its address. And there you go. However, after the work we did with this particular client, that was the true extent of the relationships of that known terrorist with other customers in the bank. So, for example, we had our chap here with this account, with this address, and with this money being sent to this external account. And here's our known terrorist friend. We then worked out at the same address, at the same time, there were a number of other customers who all connected to that same address. Two of those, so these three chaps here, the path dies off because their accounts were closed many years back and the path dies off. But these two chaps, what chap is this? I can't remember if they were male or female. But these two nodes had two other accounts which were transacting cross-border to this external account. Now, typically, in a normal approach, the path would die here. So the money has left bank A and has gone to bank B. As bank A, I don't know what that bank B account does. However, there were four other customers that bank A banked. Those four other customers, at the same similar time, with the same amounts as these two fellas, also sent money to the same account. Now, suddenly, without knowing who owns that third-party account, I now know I've got even further exposure because there are other customers that we have also sending money to the known account. If we go down the other side, which was the money coming from the terrorist account going into another external account, the same is true with two other accounts, sorry, two other customers also sending money or receiving money from, those from this known terrorist account beneficiary, as well as these other accounts which were also connected back to the external account. And the same is true up here. Now, what you will also see, you've got a few customers here where the traditional AML systems had generated alerts for some behavior in the past where, these, where this bank had shut them down as false positives. They looked at the event in isolation without knowing the entire view and said, based upon the transaction, it's a false positive. So a typical scenario could be a round dollar amount. Hmm, $10,000, trigger an alert. 
However, when you put this as part of the context, what you now quickly see is actually, if the bank had this view of the graph and known some of these other red flags, for example, you've got two other customers here where the bank had already reported SARS, then maybe these two customers here, which was closed down for false positives, may not necessarily been a false positive. So the question might go back to the bank, did you knowingly know you were facilitating money laundering? Because you had raised alerts here and were shut down for false positives. But again, it's about building context. When you're looking at this view, it actually might be an absolute false positive. But when you piece this information together, now suddenly it is not a false positive and it was actually connected to this known terrorist. Question? Can I just ask how long it took to build that after the trigger? Super question. So, the user that was the bank user, the investigator, built this picture in 44, 45 minutes. Once the tip-off, this node had been given to the investigator. Now, the question was also raised by the ops team. If you didn't have Quantexa, how long would something like this take? And it could take weeks, if not months, to build a picture like this. Because you have to go through billion transactions off this account to say, oh, are there any connections? So you're now doing, you're speeding up that investigation so you can focus better on the actual financial crime risk efficiently and more effectively, not going down rabbit holes because you are connected through Amazon, for example everyone probably would be connected to Amazon. So you don't really want to go through Amazon if I've received money or sent money through Amazon. Great question. Another key, another example. So this particular bank, there is an individual here who owns this bank account over here. This individual here was sentenced for seven years for money laundering. The bank left their bank account open. And I, I doubted it. And I was like, really, is this open? Because we could see on the negative news that this young lady was sentenced to seven years for money laundering in Guernsey prison. And what we then started seeing is that money was flowing while she was in prison. So she's very active in prison. Money was flowing out of her account to a number of other bank accounts. There was money being sent out of the bank, again, quite large volumes while she was in prison. And the money was coming back into the bank on associated accounts where the bank did not know. And this is just the power of using just transactions. Looking at associations with transactional data. And again, 
This took minutes, hour, then weeks and months. But again, technology is only as good as the process you put the technology through. I would never advocate that you should put these type of technology in the wild without the governance and the process around it. In addition, what is also critical is the training and the transparency. And I mentioned the transparency earlier. When it comes to financial crime, understanding why you generated this alert and why you did not generate an alert here is fundamental to the governance process that most banks need to go through. So one thing we built, again, with our clients is automated below-the-line testing. So we can set thresholds and take samples below thresholds and still ask the user to investigate because you're now proving your model. And coming back to my earlier point, which was outcomes. Some of these outcomes we know for example, this particular network where we had a known money launderer in the middle connecting her money right through this network, these outcomes should be stored and a model should be trained against it. Bless you. It's very important that when you know your outcomes to train against it when you know it's a good outcome. But again, coming back to my earlier point, you need two sides. You need the data to drive abnormal behaviors, and you also need to put in those rules and scenarios that you know are indicative of catching financial crime. The same is true on a large program of work we're doing around trade finance. So taking bills of lading, taking invoice data, taking the payments, the transactions, the SWIFT data, and connecting that with the KYC and your third party Dun & Bradstreet or Bureau Van Dyke data. And actually saying, well, a ship has moved from Hong Kong via these ports to Dubai. No other ship actually did that. Only this particular one did. And so certain projects, I mean, they are weighing the cargo. And suddenly what you're seeing, the cargo getting heavier at every port it lands at. There was one example on a particular um, client where it went into Dubai and then left the UAE, and it was a cargo of cars, and the cars all got very heavy after leaving the UAE because they were getting armored. And now suddenly those cars were getting a lot heavier, and the cargo got heavier. Why would a set of fleet of cars get armored and then leave a port? Interesting. So again, it's about following the money. It is about building context. And most importantly, it's about looking at the entire picture. And if you can't look at the entire picture, you are going to miss things. You are going to spend time investigating alerts which are false you need to take a contextual view. Thank you for listening. 
You can find out more information about our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. Want to get involved? Contact us at podcast at libf.ac.uk.